This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, my name is Marvin Cohen. I'm a professor of physics here at Berkeley, and I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Ralph Cicerone, who will present the second Hitchcock lecture today. Yesterday, when he introduced Dr. Cicerone, Professor Vincent Resch reviewed the background regarding the creation of the Charles and Martha Hitchcock lecture series. I won't repeat what he said except for echoing his statement that we feel that the Hitchcock Fund has been one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Dr. Ralph J. Cicerone is president of the National Academy of Sciences and chair of the National Research Council. His research, which focuses on atmospheric chemistry, climate change, and trace gases, resulted in his making fundamental contributions to our understanding of greenhouse gases and ozone depletion. In addition, he has been credited with shaping science and environmental policy, both nationally and internationally. His achievements in research and in his public policy leadership in protecting the global environment have been recognized with many awards, such as the 1999 Bauer Award and the Prize for Achievement in Science from the Franklin Institute. In 2001, he led a National Academy of Sciences study on the current state of climate change requested by President Bush. After obtaining degrees from MIT and the University of Illinois, Dr. Cicerone was associated with the University of Michigan, our sister University UC San Diego and the Scripps Institute, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and in 1989 he joined another UC campus, UC, joined the faculty at UC Irvine, where he served as a professor, a chair, a dean, and then the chancellor. And he did it very rapidly. That's where I first met Ralph during my visits to Irvine to do physics with the faculty there and to sit on committees. I recall how happy I was when he agreed to run for election and was elected in 2005 as president of the National Academy of Sciences. Throughout his years as president of the NAS, I've watched Ralph handle an incredibly large number of complex problems and issues, many going well beyond science. For those of you who heard his wonderful lecture yesterday, you will understand what I mean when I describe him as knowing all the facts, using sound arguments and logic, presenting information in a non-confront confrontational manner and slowly showing you the correct path. And you end up thinking that's the only correct path because he does such a good job. 
His yearly speeches at the NAS annual meetings on the state of science are marvelous. Yesterday's lecture focused on a discussion related to up-to-date data on climate change. Today, he will compare successful initiatives to protect the ozone layer. And this is a subject where a great deal of the basic science was done here at Berkeley with unsuccessful, at least to date, initiatives to stabilize global climate. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Ralph Cicero. Well, thank you, Professor Cohen. Uh, I, I look forward to today's time with you because I'm going to take a rather different path than I did yesterday. As Professor Cohen said, I focused a lot on uh, field data, things that are being measured around the world, temperatures and precipitation and so forth, sea level and ice loss and so forth. Fairly factual, although very stunning, too, how much has been learned uh, <clears throat> and what it all adds up to. But today I want to focus on the topic which is summarized there in the title because a lot of us wonder, what are the differences? Why was the world able to come to an agreement uh, that's, that's old enough now that some of you in the room are not as old as the agreement is, let alone the phenomenon that preceded it. But nonetheless, it's quite striking. A lot of books have been written about what's called the Montreal Protocol and how well it has acted uh, to protect the uh, atmospheric ozone layer and uh, subsequently then things that are affected, living things that are affected by increased ultraviolet light. And then why it's been so difficult to reach any effective agreement on limiting climate change. And I, when I received this wonderful invitation to come to deliver a Hitchcock lecture, I thought I'd really like to try that topic. Some opinion is mixed in. You'll see that this is not so much facts. There haven't been uh, really any serious books written on this subject. But let me give it a try. So what I'll do quickly is to sketch out the similarities between these two global international situations where human activities are demonstrably affecting the environment in largely harmful ways and how it is uh, that the public reacted to them, what were the ingredients, uh, why did the political action go the way it did, why did the corporate world behave the way it did, why do we end up with such an effective protection of the ozone layer and we're still struggling with climate change quite mightily. I'll give you a hint, though. When I wrote down this title, I hadn't yet studied what came out of Paris in December. And after I've thought about the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015, I'm more optimistic. There are some extremely uh, intelligent provisions written into that, uh, what will become a treaty. So I'll, I'll make some contrasts and then I'll talk about each of these issues a little bit and then give you my score sheet of why it's turned out so differently. And part of it has to do with cartoons that appear in newspapers and magazines. So the outline is, I'll give you a quick sketch of these two global environmental problems, the rudiments of them, and then to start to compare public and governmental responses and then talk uh, at the end more about the international framework we have to deal with the climate issue and what just has come out of Paris and where it stands. So 
the ozone layer. Professor Cohen just mentioned that some of the most important research on this topic uh, happened here at Berkeley. Certainly not all of it, but some very important things, uh, largely due to Professor Harold Johnston, now a deceased uh, faculty member in chemistry. But at the time all this started, in around 1970, we didn't know much about ozone in the atmosphere. It had been discovered 100 years before, but what it was doing there, how it got produced, what limits it was not known. <clears throat> but it was known that it's the, the natural layer of ozone exists up in the upper atmosphere and that it absorbs, as a gas, it absorbs ultraviolet light. And the sun sending us uh, sunlight does emit ultraviolet light, so the ozone layer plays a major part in absorbing ultraviolet light from the sun, which, if it were not observe, uh, absorbed up in the upper atmosphere, would come down to the surface of the Earth where it can interact, uh, not only causes skin cancer in light-skinned people, but other kinds of skin damage and surface damage to plants, and uh, it makes cracks in your windshield wiper blades and car tires. That's why modern rubber today has UV stabilizers built into the rubber, things like this, a nuisance. And uh, just about that time, though, the first laboratory studies of, of uh, typical biochemicals, including uh, uh, small organisms and cells, were being studied and found that ultraviolet light of the same wavelength that is absorbed by ozone uh, breaks down typical protein molecules and causes skin cancer in humans and in some animals. And as a kind of secondary part of the climate system, when ozone absorbs that ultraviolet light, it heats the upper atmosphere and creates the temperature structure of the upper atmosphere. These things were all kind of known qualitatively, uh, but not too much was known. So a couple of us who were moving from one scientific field to another decided to look into the ozone layer because it sounded interesting and not much was known and we could get going on something quickly. And rather soon we came up with an idea that if somehow chlorine atoms could enter the ozone layer, uh, several reactions would occur. And we had to do a lot of sorting out to get here. But a chlorine atom reacts with ozone and makes a chlorine monoxide molecule plus a normal oxygen. The uh, sunlight is always hitting ozone, for example, visible light to release an oxygen atom and O2. And the third reaction closes this, what's now seen to be a chain. The ClO that was produced in the first reaction now reacts in the third reaction. And you'll see that this is like a cycle. You can add these up. And the net result is that two ozone molecules and a photon of light have become three oxygen molecules. So this is a neat way to destroy ozone. It's a principle of catalysis. Industrial chemists use it all the time. It's used in car exhausts now to uh, catalytically destroy nitrogen oxides. So we, we knew we had found something interesting. And the trick was, is there any chlorine in the upper atmosphere? Uh, at the same time, Mario Molina, who had just finished graduate school here at Berkeley and had moved down to Irvine with his colleague Sherry Rowland, came up with an idea that there was a class of chemicals that humans had created, purely synthetic chemicals called chlorofluoromethanes, uh, that are inert enough 
that they, they're building up in the lower atmosphere and that in normal course of events they could drift upwards into the upper atmosphere intact, not being destroyed, where they could be broken apart and chlorine atoms would fall out of them and then they would proceed to destroy ozone. So these people discovered what we had just discovered several months before, but they had a much more important uh, story, namely that humans were doing something already and in the amounts being used, these chemical reactions are so effective that there could be significant harm to the ozone layer. So they published this in a British journal and everybody paid attention immediately. These chemicals, the chlorofluorocarbons, as I said, were synthetic. Even though they were produced by only a few companies worldwide, they were in their, their sales growth rates were, the growth rates were about 15% per year worldwide. The U.S. aerosol spray can market was about a billion cans a year, hairsprays, deodorants. There was even a product that delivered catnip in a spray can with CFCs. Uh, and these were very popular items. They had originally been invented, these chemicals, as refrigeration fluids to replace what were really some nasty and toxic fluids in old-time refrigerators. So these chemicals were seen as a success story, and their sales and market were just taking off. Uh, you'll see the, the chemical names of a couple of them here. They were essentially inert. They were designed to be inert. They were built to be inert. If you put a propellant in a spray can with, say, perfume, you don't want the propellant to interact with the perfume and change its color and smell. You want the propellant to be inert. They were designed to be that way, and they were. But what Molina and Roland pointed out, and they came up here to Berkeley to visit with Hal Johnston to see if he could poke any holes in what they had proposed, uh, was that the ultimate fate of these chemicals in the Earth's atmosphere is they would survive rain, they would survive clouds, they would survive attack by other chemicals, they wouldn't be oxidized, but they would go up into the ozone layer, be torn apart by that same kind of energetic UV light and release chlorine atoms. And that then would trigger this catalytic cycle against ozone. Well, when this idea was first proposed, we, we knew virtually nothing about this whole system. And a lot of people just scoffed and said, you've got to be crazy. This little spray can that I'm using is somehow going to be dangerous worldwide. It was a completely unacceptable notion. But the public reaction turned out to be very strong over the next few years. Incidentally, these CFC molecules were discovered to be strong greenhouse gases in 1975, and when that was discovered, nobody believed it either. Uh, this is just a sketch of, of what happens. So just like with climate change now, there were very common claims being made. In fact, I gave a seminar in a physics department, I think it was the University of Michigan, where the faculty basically scoffed at these ideas using some of these phrases that are about to follow. I've put them all in quotation marks because they're not facts. They were uh, what people were claiming at the time. First of all, these chemicals are heavier than air. They won't rise into the stratosphere. Well, we had learned in the 1940s, for God's sake, that the lowest 100 kilometers of the Earth's atmosphere is fully mixed. Uh, gravitational separation has nothing to do with it. 
molecules like argon and carbon dioxide were found high in the atmosphere in the same fractions as at their surface. So that's just an example of how people, their knee-jerk reaction was, this idea cannot possibly be right. They will not rise into the stratosphere. That there are large natural sources of CFCs, such as volcanoes. There weren't. Many of us went out into volcanoes and actually tried to find this stuff. There weren't. Uh, there are large natural sources of similar chlorine-containing gases. Uh, that's virtually wrong, but there's one exception. That even so, chlorine will not destroy ozone, and the CFC source is too small to matter. Uh, there were more of these things. Stratospheric ozone behavior is too complicated to calculate. Why do you even do these calculations? They're going to be wrong. That there are other causes of skin cancer besides ultraviolet light. And it, ultraviolet light is good for you. Uh, all kinds of statements like this. Chemicals are innocent until proven guilty. Consumers want aerosol spray products. Well, that was an interesting one because <clears throat> there was a, a, a book written about the aerosol industry that documented how much, quote, consumer resistance there was to aerosol spray cans. And some of the examples given were with sp underarm spray deodorants that people really didn't like being hit in the armpit by a spray of cold air. So there had to be massive advertising campaigns mounted to overcome that resistance. Yes, some people like these products for their convenience, but the fact that the consumers had voted uh, that they wanted these products turned out not to be right because far long before there were government regulations and edicts, the market for these compounds started to drop off, largely due to people speaking and saying, you know, if there's any chance that these scientists are right, why don't we just quit using these things? We can have a pump bottle with hairspray in it. We've got substitutes. We don't need these things. And then the, one of the silliest ones of all, Molina and Roland are computer modelers. Well, <laughs> they were both laboratory physical chemists. They didn't know what a computer looked like. Uh, now, an important fact that will come out later is that this success story of these synthetical chemicals synthetic chemicals, which really were useful as refrigerants and air conditioning fluids, uh, were produced by only a few companies around the world. I'll just list their names here. Uh, six largely in the United States, where most of the market was. Now, at this, as when this story became uh, widespread, I was told at one congressional hearing that Congress was receiving more mail on this chlorofluorocarbon ozone project problem than they had ever received on any subject since the Second World War. So there was great public awareness, and Pogo cartoon picked it up in three or four different ones. I don't know if you can read that, but it says, the ozone layer is up there between 8 and 30 miles, and it's being depleted by man. And the turtle says, how? Oh, by exhaust from jet planes high-altitude testing of nuclear bombs, and inert gases from spray cans. How can anything way up there be harmed by a little old spray can? Billions of them, Churchy. So it goes on and on. So there was a tremendous uptake and uh, illustration of the principles in, in daily and weekly magazines, year after year. Another one was Jim Barry, who was a famous cartoonist. The, first, the previous one you'll recognize was the Kelly family who did Pogo. 
This one from Jim Barry, the boy's telling his father, of, you realize, of course, what does that say? That what you're doing to the ozone hole, what you did to the passenger pigeon. Uh, Bill Malden, who was the cartoonist who invented G.I. Joe in the Second World War, was very popular and showing all these atomic bombs, I guess. And he says, oh, so that, the aerosol bomb, that's the one that's most likely to get us. And then an important feature was cartoonists started to criticize the chlorofluorocarbon chemical manufacturers. True, the fluorocarbon industry's threat to the ozone layer may very well be serious, but the ozone layer's threat to the fluorocarbon industry is equally serious. And this begins to pick up an important point. From the public's point of view, they could blame this problem on a few producers. Nobody else, no other natural process was producing these chemicals. But you could point to a list of six companies in the United States that were producing most of the world's chlorofluorocarbons. And that made it easy for people to say, well, I wouldn't be harmed if we just got rid of these, if I could keep my refrigerator and my air conditioner. Uh, Let's get rid of all the rest. Then later, another important element is in 1985, a discovery was made looking down on the Earth from a remote sensing satellite and looking up from the Earth from Antarctica. It was discovered that there was a big hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica. There aren't even any people there. So it illustrated the point on the one hand that chemicals do survive journeys around the Earth, but it also showed that there were surprises And this was very much a scientific issue. And by the way, the scientists missed this. The scientists did not predict this. They did not not understand the sudden appearance of the ozone layer. So from a public point of view, very much an element here of the unknown. This was not a political issue. They could see that science was involved. Discoveries were being made. In fact, the first people who should have seen the ozone hole threw away the data. They didn't believe the data and it took other groups to come along who actually made this discovery. So there was an element of discovery in science. I'm just talking a little bit about what we learned about the ozone hole. Another cartoon, little, (laughs) this is a takeoff on Little Orphan Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow and then the sun comes out because there's an ozone hole and all the ultraviolet comes down and scorches everything. These cartoonists had a big uh, impact I cannot tell you how much mail I got people responding to cartoons. Uh, A lot of what I'm saying is well-documented. This is one of the best books ever written about a saga like this and how the international negotiations came into play, written by a United States State Department ambassador, Richard Benedict, who was one of the key people in negotiating the international agreements. This was during the Reagan administration. Ronald Reagan was president, and Reagan supported these international negotiations, in fact, helped to lead the way toward the international agreement to ban chlorofluorocarbons. But this book called Ozone Diplomacy by Richard Benedict, I think it's published around 1992. It's good. There are a couple of other books that, that can document pretty much everything I'm saying, although I think they miss the tremendous impact of local consumer groups. Uh, My wife, Carol, and I will remember that there was a young man about 23 years old who 
took on a crusade of getting rid of aerosol spray products. He called it the clean air movement, and he went around giving demonstrations to people that the cans of aerosol products they were buying were 85 to 90% by weight propellant, and they weren't getting much product. So he, and he pointed to this danger to the ozone layer, and in, every, in many states, there were local and state movements to get rid of these chemicals. People had said, we don't need this chance anymore. We'll just, uh, the, these unpredicted things are happening. We're getting afraid. We don't need these products. So that was the genesis of how the federal government could enter the situation. In many states, state governments were threatening, including California, to unilaterally ban the sale, distribution, and production of these chemicals. So some of the chemical manufacturers decided that it would be better for them to accept a, well, a well-founded federal regulation rather than trying to fight the uh, tattered fabric of 50 different state regulations. And these books describe all of these things. So in, the, in late 1987, in Montreal, there was a meeting that brought people together from all over the world who had been discussing this issue in their home countries, and they actually agreed to a protocol which became an international treaty. The first step was a schedule to phase out the production and consumption of these chlorofluorocarbon chemicals with an agreed-upon schedule that the, the first two compounds listed, or the first three, would be phased out slowly. Uh, after two or three years, they would be their production and sales would be limited to, I don't know, something like 75% of what it had been. And then this agreement provided for subsequent reviews. So the countries of the world actually agreed that they would limit and police this production, make it illegal, but they would come back together three or four years later to see if the information still justified it or did they overreact in which case you could cut back on the regulations, leave the chemical manufacturers alone, continue to use the chemicals. But if, on the other hand, the scientific information every two or three or four years would become more definite and perhaps more threatening, then the agreement could be tuned and tightened. Well, by, by 1990, I think it was uh, Prime Minister Thatcher in London uh, demanded a reconvening because the evidence had come in that things were worse. Uh, the evidence that the ozone layer was being degraded by these CFCs got stronger. So they modified this protocol in all of these years, uh, 1991, 1993, 1995, 97, signed by 190 nations, and there is now a complete ban on the, the two or three major compounds and a pretty strong ban on all of the others, including some compounds that contain bromine that have the same characteristics. So because the scientific information kept getting more certain and more threatening, this protocol had this uh, revision provision that would allow a, a, a complete review of whether the situation looked less threatening or more threatening with a schedule for for making it tighter or looser. And this was a brilliant, and I think Ambassador Benedict deserves a lot of the credit, although it was President Reagan who really permitted and authorized 
the State Department to enter into this kind of Montreal Protocol. Uh, <clears throat> before the protocol, though, there had been international scientific meetings. That, that, that the phrase, the term of art is assessment, where all the information is brought together, you know, peer-reviewed scientific publications from all over the world. People were supposed to become familiar with them and criticize them and adopt some common understanding. And that kind of cycle had uh, been undertaken several times. I think it was 1984, 1986, 1989, 1991. Every three, four, five years, there would be more of these international gatherings with some really top-notch scientists arguing with each other. And I remember, this is a little bit uh, off the point, but originally the British were a little put out because they hadn't discovered the problem, so they were a little, a little slow to agree with everybody else. But when their scientists started making important contributions, including the discovery of the Antarctic ozone hole, they changed their mind, and this had now become something that they had discovered, so they agreed. Uh, and there were language problems with scientists from other countries uh, before basically everybody was speaking English. I mean, before that happened, but there were language problems. An interesting point is the protocol, with all of its teeth, was enacted before there was any evidence of actual harm to humans or to any living thing. There's a minor exception to that, but this point is mostly right. So this entire international agreement with binding legal requirements was enacted before there was any evidence of damage. Think about that. And, uh, and it was enacted before this chlorine mechanism was proven to cause the Antarctic ozone hole. So uh, it was really very far-reaching, but maybe the provision of it that was important was that everybody agreed you can come back and re-argue it every two or three years. If we're wrong, take it away. If we're right, make it stronger. So that provision was a stroke of genius. So this is just a graphical way of showing you that the protocol has worked. This is, this, for this chemical, chlorofluorocarbon-11, the year is 1990, 95, 2000, 2005. The amount that's measured in the atmosphere is decreasing with time. That particular chemical will survive in the atmosphere 75, 80 years. So it takes a long time for nature to destroy it. So we're not putting any more into the air, but it's coming down slowly, just as predicted, and the same with the other two. So it's evidence that the protocol has worked. Now, yesterday... I talked somewhat about the, the, what's observed about climate change, but this graph is a kind of iconic symbol of it, the increasing carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere, which many of you are very familiar with. But now I want to talk a little bit about climate change and what we know in less detail, and then some of the similarities and dissimilarities. So the major driving force, of course, is the worldwide usage of fossil fuels, and the result being that we inject a great deal of carbon dioxide as carbon, 10 billion tons a year now into the, into the air worldwide. And it comes from you know, the burning of coal, the burning of uh, petroleum, natural gas, and the production of cement and so forth. The point is that this is a major disturbance. The numbers have been quantified pretty well, and their impacts 
are, I, they're being estimated, of course, but the estimates are converging on what looks to be a serious problem. So the driving force is human activity. There's lots and lots and lots of evidence to, to present to show why that's true for this greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, and, and several others, but I want to skim over that today. We've had a series of serious international assessments. Each one of these booklets, the cover of which I'm showing, runs to be about 1,000 pages, and there are 1,000-page additions to it that look not only at the physical science basis, the one that I'm showing here, but also uh, what humans can do to mitigate and to decrease climate change, how to adapt to it. And these assessments have been done fairly carefully now since 1990. The last one was released in 2013, but 1990, 1995, 2001, 2007, and 2013. And after these four or five dress rehearsals, I would say that they're pretty high quality. They are as good a survey of the published literature as probably any one of you could find in any field that, that you've worked in. Thousands, thousands of scientists do the work, and every single critical argument and criticism of the draft versions are addressed and made public. So it's done about as well as we can do it. So in that respect, these two problems are the same. They've had tremendous international attention, probably not enough, but still about as much as, as people could bring together. It's been done repeatedly, so it's not just a one-shot affair. The ozone assessments look like this, and they happened every four years or so over the last 30 years. But now let's, let's compare the solutions a little bit. In the case of ozone depletion, and here's where my opinion is going to start to come out, I think the framing of the issue has been very different. Uh, I'll start on the right side with climate change. Pretty much every time you see a story written about climate change, it might have a headline that science is questionable, but then within six words of the beginning, it starts to talk about politics and economic costs, for example. So the framing of the issue in the case of ozone depletion was as a scientific issue. There are a lot of unknowns, a lot of things to be discovered. There are surprises. Uh, but in the case of climate change, it's as if everybody's an expert and we can just jump off to political action and assume that regulations are going to be unbearable and we're supposed to, t and we're supposed to talk about politics and regulations and ignore the scientific part of it. But this is what political relation, or public relations people would call framing. Uh, what is the first instinct you have when you hear about a new issue? If it's been framed as a mystery or a scientific issue, you'll have a different set of reactions than if it's been framed as a political one where you're going to have to make bad choices. The second thing is how, from a scientific point of view, do you test this theory? Well, in the case of the ozone layer, the ozone depletion, there was what was called a smoking gun. Uh, the scientific community agreed in 1974 that the smoking gun of this theory would be if you could simultaneously measure these two chemicals, chlorine monoxide and ozone, and they were roughly in the right amounts, what was predicted. Everything else was solid 
and everything else would follow. But in the case of climate change, we're talking about many variables that are important to us. Temperatures, winds, sea level, precipitation. Are the seasons going to stay where they are? Are the seasons, is the growing season going to be extended or shrunk? Things like that. So there is inherently a longer list of variables that have to be measured, and it's hard to come up with a smoking gun. How can you, with one observation or one variable, test everything that's being said about climate change? I don't think you can, especially if you think about the uh, uh, indirect but still potentially serious effects like public health matters. Uh, Health effects. The ozone depletion layer was framed immediately in terms of a cancer. This is what caught people's attention, especially amongst white-skinned people because they're the ones who are vulnerable. Darker-skinned people have more melanin that absorbs the ultraviolet before it, it hits the internal cells. So this issue was framed as a skin cancer issue. And many, many of the articles and discussions were about human cancer, That's pretty scary, and it had an impact. Even though it's true that ultraviolet light and sunburn does not cause all skin cancers, it still is a demonstrated cause of many skin cancers. With climate change, uh, I think it's hard to come up with a direct health effect. You have to get into the arguments in a pretty sophisticated way to say, you know there are going to be health effects, of climate change. I'll give you one example which, is, which has those characteristics. In 2003, there was a major heat wave around Paris in, uh, I think it was July. And when this heat wave broke after six weeks, the Parisian officials and the provinces around there estimated that something like 40,000 people, I think it was 30 or 40,000 people, had died under heat stress and dehydration during that heat wave. And it's pretty well documented. It it largely had to do with uh, elderly people living in flats and apartments that didn't have good circulation and air conditioning, and they were being put under respiratory and heat stress. So I would say that's a pretty big health impact, but it's pretty subtle. Uh, It's only happened under these extreme conditions. There was a heat wave in Chicago in 1995 that caused similarly pretty well-documented deaths. But for the most part, when we think about climate change, we're not talking about health effects. And what do you expect the public to do when they hear about one issue that has a cancerous impact and the other with maybe no health effects? That was another reason why we've ended up with different solutions to these problems, at least in general. The complexity. We now look at the ozone layer and realize it was really pretty simple. Uh, there are some people here in the, in the audience who are working on much more difficult problems in atmospheric chemistry. But at the time, the ozone layer was turns out to be pretty simple, uh, less complex, and pretty much a global picture. Worldwide, everything was going to be roughly the same. In the case of climate change, we've got natural and historic variability. We know there have been big climate changes before that have resulted in big impacts in certain regions, certain periods of time. It's been natural. And therefore, climate change is playing out against that background. That is, the human-caused climate change 
is being superimposed on a system where there is already natural and historical variability that humans have been subjected to. That there are local differences. Uh, in fact, we have this urban heat island now where it's hotter in the middle of the city day and night than it is in the surrounding areas. And a, a major source of complexity is that in the climate system, part of the system is living organisms, plants, microbes, and, and humans for that matter. Whereas with the ozone layer, to a first approximation, it was a physical system. When you introduce life into a system, things become more complicated. Another one, guilty parties. Already, I've already more than hinted at this. In the case of the chlorofluorocarbons, I could name the companies even after all these years. There's a, so few of them. They were, they were producing the chemicals. They had invented them. They were selling them. They were making lots of money. Uh, but in the case of climate change, uh, to take the major source of climate change, carbon dioxide, it's every single user of fossil fuels around the world. That's seven billion of us. When you wanted to know who the guilty party was in the case of the ozone layer, you could point to those companies. Who's the guilty party in the case of climate change? You, you know, you can look in the mirror. To continue, how big was this need in the first place? In the case of the chlorofluorocarbons, we didn't really need them in aerosols, aerosol products. There was one exemption given in that ban that I remember. Producers of aerosol products that carry fine diamond dust in it for highly specialized applications in cleaning of jewelry and things like that. But for the most part, these chlorofluorocarbons were unnecessary. They could be replaced by spray products, you know, handheld pumps and so forth. The CFCs as refrigerants and air conditioners, for goodness sake, Florida wouldn't have anywhere near the population it has now if it weren't for air conditioners, and parts of California for that matter. Electricity use in California is driven by air conditioners. You can go to the Public Utilities Commission and, and see the data on electrical consumption on hot days in California. But for fossil fuels, we're talking about more essential issues for generating electricity, uh, which until recently has been dominated by coal generation of electricity. And fortunately, some renewable fuels are helping out on that front now, and natural gas, which is less dirty. But the point is heating, lighting, electricity, and transportation are pretty essential so it's harder to find substitutes, and it's especially hard to find substitutes that can handle the electricity needs and transportation needs of the whole world, let's say, next year. We had a nice discussion here yesterday with some people over when will we see mass substitutions for gasoline and diesel fuel. And it's, it's, it's in sight, but it's not going to be in the next five or ten years. Uh, are substitutes available? Well, as it turned out, there are now substitute aerosol propellants and there are substitute refrigerants. They're slightly more complicated chemicals that have a hydrogen atom or more in each of the molecules instead of just chlorine and fluorine. And there, some of them are so successful that they can, be, they can be seen to cause no damage to the ozone layer. There's some greenhouse gas effect. They're cheap. 
They've been able to use the same compressors and cooling units in car and truck air conditioners and so forth. So the substitutes have been a major success. And here, I think the DuPont company deserves a lot of credit for developing these substitutes in a hurry when the Montreal Protocol really was looming, coming down the road at them. And the substitutes for climate change, the substitutes are in sight, like renewable energy, wind and solar and hydropower, and maybe safe nuclear power, not so clear, but not to the scale that we need, at least not immediately. So people, in responding what to do about these two issues, they think about all of these things. An economist, the first question an economist would ask, is there a substitute for the substance that you're talking about, uh, for example? These international assessments I just said were roughly the same, high quality, international involvement, uh, subject to rigorous peer review, roughly a par there. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of scientists ask, look, we've done a good job on these assessments. Why can't we just have an international agreement on climate change? Well, it's all of these other things are involved. How many defenders were there of the CFCs? Frankly, only a few manufacturers and a few aerosol spray can uh, people, whereas there are some serious defenders of fossil fuels, the petroleum and mining interests, and, and more modern, these anti-government attitudes, thinking that any kind of regulatory action is somehow not acceptable. So, and you've probably seen analyses of how much resistance there is, organized resistance, that try to undercut the science and try to oppose any kind of uh, organized action. Uh, there was a cartoon on that 2001 report that Professor Cohen mentioned. The, the White House didn't respond very well to our report. Uh, there was a Berkeley faculty member on that committee with me, Inez Fong, who I don't think is here today, but she will remember. And this was a great cartoon that uh, we got the original of it, didn't you? You got it, you got it from that guy in Akron, yeah. Now, where do we stand on climate change? The original United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, signed by President Bush, George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, stated right up front that the ultimate objective of this convention is to achieve stabilization of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. It's a pretty clear statement of what the goal is. However, since 1992, it has not been possible to agree on what is a dangerous level of greenhouse gas concentrations and then to devise actions to, to achieve it. Uh, the, this group, the official delegates of all the UN nations, 190 nations, has met about 20 times since 1992, 15 or 20, and uh, they haven't made much progress. In the 1990s, they agreed on what was called the Kyoto Protocol from a meeting in Kyoto, Japan. And uh, it was never accepted in the United States. President Clinton didn't even take the treaty to the Senate where he had to get it confirmed. I think the, the uh, assumed vote was gonna be about 95 to nothing against his proposal had he done it. So he never even took it to the Senate as I remember. But the original goal uh, was clear, as I say. 
And it's, it's hard even from a scientific point of view to define with a simple number what is the safe level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We might agree that whatever there was before the Industrial Revolution was safe. We know what those numbers are. But this assumes, and the fact is, we're already well above that number, so it's hard to know what to shoot for. But now the Paris Agreement, which the more I got into it, the more optimistic I began to come. Of course, your reaction to a document like this depends on your original expectation. My expectation was low. Uh, But after thinking about all of these things, I feel more optimistic. First of all, the goal. The goal continues to be the original goal, to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with climate stability. But they've come up with a specific line, to limit the global average temperature rise to 2 degrees centigrade. And this is largely a European-driven target. There's been, I would say, more work in Europe in the scientific community to try to uh, estimate what the impacts would be. And of course, it's not the global average temperature that really causes all of this, but as a, as a proxy measure, the level of greenhouse gases can be specified as, as those that would cause the global average temperature to rise two degrees. So what I'm saying is you don't have to agree with this, but it is a real step forward in terms of specifying what a dangerous level should be. The way they propose in the Paris Climate Agreement to reach that level of stability is not legally binding. It does not say, the treaty does not say the United States shall do this and shall not do that, or China shall do this and shall not do that, although the word shall was apparently a source of great argument amongst the diplomats. Every time there's a treaty to be uh, written, they argue over whether things should be shall or should. But in this case, The principle is different. Before the meeting, they agreed that every country participating in the Paris discussions would bring to the table voluntary national commitments to limit the emissions of greenhouse gases. And the greenhouse gases are very sensibly defined as carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, some CFCs, and a few other, the so-called basket of six or seven chemicals. So if a nation comes forward, like, say, New Zealand, whose principal emission of greenhouse gases is through methane from sheep, if they could propose to limit that enough, that could be an acceptable, I'm just picking that out of the air, that could be an acceptable contribution if they could voluntarily commit to limit the emissions of that country, that particular greenhouse gas. I do have what the United States committed to, and we can talk about it earlier, but in the treaty language, these are called uh, nationally determined contributions. So the leaders of the countries, like the United States, can tell the public and the Congress, uh, we determined this contribution. The other nations of the world didn't tell us what to do. These are nationally determined. And all 190 nations delivered these nationally determined contributions. Now, the fact is, what was delivered to Paris is not going to stabilize the climate change to less than 2 degrees. But what's very interesting is they've adopted some of the features of the Montreal Protocol, whereby there will be assessments and estimates 
by experts without political interference of the numbers. Are your estimates uh, viable? You're saying that you'll cut your emissions by a certain fraction compared to the year 2010 or 1990. Well, how well can you establish that baseline? So this third point, assess each nation's progress towards its nationally determined contribution, all 187 nations. Everyone has now agreed that their assessment and their estimates will be reviewed by technically competent people internationally on a periodic basis every two years, something like that. This is real progress because the Kyoto Protocol from 1997 did not have any requirements on developing countries. The entire burden was on so-called rich countries. They had to achieve all the goals that were set to them legally, but there were no requirements even for reporting from the developing countries. So in this one, the richer nations won by getting all the countries to agree that there will be a technically competent assessment of how much progress you're making toward your nationally determined contribution. I think this is really progress. And the, the, the estimates themselves will be analyzed for quality and fidelity and, and honesty by technical experts. This whole process will be iterated. On a schedule roughly every five years, if not sooner, there will be new efforts. And the assumption and the commitment is you will now lower your emissions to achieve a tighter uh, bound of 1.5 degrees centigrade on the global average temperature. Uh, Something that the poorer nations insisted on is they want money from the richer nations. This has always been the case. But the goal now is to create a fund of $100 billion per year that the poor developing nations can draw from to do two things to buy and purchase new energy technology, such as renewable energy, uh, and for adaptation purposes. For example, the island nations that are facing consequences from sea level rise will now be able to draw on technical help from the advanced nations as well as money. And then finally, there is nothing in this agreement called Annex 1 and Annex 2. The 1992 agreement that I mentioned earlier had a definition of, okay, who's supposed to achieve this objective? And what it said was, all nations of the world have common but differentiated responsibilities. And for 20-some years now, the diplomats have been arguing, what does that mean? So now there was an Annex I in 1992, which was the nations that have capital, that have technology, that have an educated public. They were given all the responsibility So it's hardly a differentiated responsibility if all the responsibility was on the backs of the rich people. The common part of it says that even the developing nations have to look ahead, and while they're developing their own economy, they have to take some of this responsibility. But the feature of creating this $100 billion fund, and by the way, it's annual, it's not a five-year fund, is that there will be help, technical help and uh, advisory help to these developing countries. So on the whole, I think this is a very intelligent document. Now, will it succeed? For example, there's a lot of discussion around the rest of the world right now that uh, 
Obama's term has ended and he's committed to this agreement, but will the next president of the United States honor these voluntary contributions or drop out? Of course, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think the, uh, and from an, econo- from an economist's point of view, this probably isn't as good as a, a firmer agreement that has, for example, trade implications or something like this, um, market implications that are enforced. But I think abolishing the Annex I and the Annex II and embracing the rest of this agreement is a real step forward. And I think there's a good possibility here that public opinion worldwide will draw nations to stay with it. Now, to trigger the agreement, it's called a two-trigger process. By April 15th or 16th or 18th, for this treaty to go into international effect, there have to be 55 nations or more to sign, finally, and they have to represent 55% or more of all the global greenhouse gas emissions from humans. So uh, maybe we can argue about whether it's really meaningful or not. One other thing is six years ago at the National Academy of Sciences, we released a report called Verifying Greenhouse Gas Emissions. And I'm kind of proud of it because I I think I framed this one. The idea was, what if there were an international agreement on climate change? How would we know if people are behaving? Remember what President Reagan said, trust but verify on nuclear weapons. So we thought maybe other people will take the same attitude that we're going to have to have verification. Okay, how well can we verify greenhouse gas emissions? And so this committee, and again, Professor Fung here from Berkeley was on the committee, uh, scratched their brains and looked at existing technology, and they made estimates of how well we are now estimating the release of greenhouse gases. And I won't bother to give you their answers, but they came up with a second proposal, that paper estimates are very valuable and they're not being done as well as they could be done. So I think now to this Paris Agreement that requires these paper estimates and will subject them to international review by experts, and I think this is progress. I think it's quite realistic. And I'm happy that our report in 2010, uh, this report will now become famous six years later, is my prediction. So I think I'll stop here. I've given you a lot of my own opinions, but we'll see where we go next. This was the committee that, that created that last report that I mentioned. Okay, thank you again. Thank you very much. We're really glad to hear about your optimism with regard to the Paris uh, situation. I can remember when Hal Johnston uh, felt so frustrated because people didn't believe what he was saying, and I know he must have felt the same way. I told him that being a theoretical physicist, we're used to this. Whenever we come up with a, a new theory and we tell a colleague, there's only two answers you can get. It's wrong or I thought of it before. Well, thank you again. Questions? Anybody who would like to ask a question can come up to the microphone. Questions only, please. And please keep them brief and to the point. Thank you. Thank you very much for the presentation. I, I have a question about how much heat already in the global system will cause 
through inertial processes and equilibrium processes an inexorable increase in global temperature. And the point I'm trying to ask is, in your opinion, is it still possible to stay within one and a half degrees Celsius of temperature increase above pre-industrial levels? I don't think so. Uh, But that assumes that the world consumption of fossil fuels like petroleum and natural gas and coal, uh, if you go into the numbers from a scientific point of view, to, to freeze things where we are now would require a reduction of about 70 or 80 percent of all of our greenhouse gas emissions. If we just held them constant, things will continue to rise for the reasons that you indicated. We would have to have a drop of 70 or 80 percent uh, before the natural processes of removal of the greenhouse gases would begin to have any effect. And I don't think that's possible. Do you think it's still possible to stay within two degrees? Maybe, maybe. But it depends on the speed. So, I mean, people, maybe some people here have already done the numerical calculations, but if you could begin to cut the emissions by, let's say, half in the next 20 years, maybe you could reach it. But it's, it's going to be a stretch. It will be very difficult. Thank you. So will the Paris Agreement work the way we want it to? Probably not, but I think it really is a couple of steps in the right direction. I, too, thank you for this wonderful lecture. I was in Paris and was thrilled with the outcome when they announced it on that Saturday night. But I also paid close attention to what Jim Hansen was saying. He was there, too, for his first COP conference and was calling it a fraud because the UN can't put a global price on carbon. And without a global price on carbon, he doesn't see how individual nations reducing their consumption of fossil fuels is really going to change the course of things. And uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I work with Citizens Climate Lobby. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know your opinion of the role of carbon pricing in trying to achieve these very ambitious goals that were set in Paris and how the U.S. could lead and by doing so engage the rest of the world since there's no body that runs the world. Well, I will say that I don't know anybody who's become rich by betting against Jim Hansen. He really knows what he's talking about and he knows the numbers as well as anybody. Uh, But I think how we deal with it involving human choices and what will work is probably beyond all of our capability. And he, he just, for example, the United States and China really kicked off this, this approach, this framework. When Obama met with Xi in, what, November of 2014, they agreed that they would come up with a structure like this and that they would both participate. That is unprecedented. Those are the two biggest emitters. So whatever they do is going to have a big impact on the rest of the world. Uh, Carbon tax. Uh, Do we have any economists here? Yes. I would appreciate it if you would take a minute and summarize the opinions of economists as to what's the most effective method. For example, a cap-and-trade market and what you mean by effective. My understanding 
is the application of a simple carbon tax, which is empirically derived, would be the simplest and most efficient way to achieve results. That a cap and trade program probably involves a lot more management and less effective mechanisms. But I'd appreciate it, Professor Edlin, if you would comment. Well, I'm not prepared, but <laughs> it's not my field of expertise. Economics, I suppose, is, but not. What? Okay, I'll stand up. Uh, so I think what you said is probably largely right. Um, that is a carbon tax, particularly if it's implemented at the source where uh, oil is taken up out of the ground, uh, is probably the easiest to manage. Uh, either a carbon tax or a cap and trade is... Uh, you know, infinitely better than nothing uh, if you're worried about climate change. Um, but both of them have the feature, uh, unlike, uh, unlike um, pure regulation, that you can lower emissions. Uh, you can equalize the cost of lowering emissions so that... Uh, countries that uh, find it cheaper to lower emissions um, will do most of the reductions. And so that's one of, the most, one of the most important things if we're going to move forward is to minimize the cost of it. And both, both of those on the uh, both cap and trade and taxes uh, allow some flexibility as to who does the reductions and allow the possibility of shifting money and lowering costs. Well, that was, that's the best I can do uh, on the spot. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe I can add one thing, that there are economists who are looking at this situation empirically trying to figure out, okay, if there would be a tax on carbon, what should it be? Should it be a penny a pound or $2 a ton, or what should it be? And there's also an organized effort now in the federal government and, and on behalf of some investment firms to try to figure out uh, what, this, what they call the social cost of carbon should be set at. And there are lots of uncertainties, but smart people are working on it so that if there were some kind of political momentum or agreement towards a, cap, a tax or even a cap and trade with a set price, there will be some grounding empirically on what the dollar value would have to be. But I don't think we can predict how this is going to come out. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, my concern is that if you step back and look at what's happened since 1990, the science has been clear and the, the efforts to respond to the science have fallen further and further behind the objective process of global warming. In Paris, I think, at best, I, I mean, I'm with Hansen. It, it was bold in terms of catching up to the reality of what we've got to do. And, and what, what I would, the, the difference between hydro, the, the, the ozone layer and, and this is that the ozone layer was a relatively minor part of the global economy. Burning fossil fuels is, is at the core. And, and 
I, I would just urge that people have to think outside the framework of capitalism or we're in deep trouble. And I would encourage people to talk to me about Baba Vakin's new synthesis about that. Thank you. Well, that's pretty much at the core of a lot of society, too, whether you like it or not. So you, I don't think you've made the problem any easier, is what I'm trying to say, with your final solution. I think it's just... I don't think it's an easy problem. Yeah, it's not yeah. An easy, that's what we have to confront, okay. how okay. deep and how wrenching okay, got it, it actually is. But there is a way out. Okay. It's just okay. it's outside of conventional thinking. Thank you. Let me add my thanks, Ralph. Uh, I have two questions for you. First is, uh, what's your sense of the success we can have state by state or city by city in approaching this problem and in meeting the U.S. or other international targets? And the second is, uh, can you comment on where you think uh, research to support renewables and new, new approaches to avoiding fossil fuels is going in your, with your hat on as... Yeah chair of NAS, yeah. you know, I think. First of all, the state and local actions, I, I think they really do deserve attention for several reasons. One is it shows what the public has a, a proclivity to do and commit to, but also every success that is gained by a municipality or a state in the United States then becomes an exhibit. When somebody says it can't be done, it cannot be done, and California's already done it, uh, that's a pretty strong case. So I think these state and local actions are very important. And by the way, it's similar to what happened in the ozone layer business. There were uh, one example I'll give is on my birthday in 1975, I had to testify in the state senate of New York about CFCs. And there was a company there who claimed that they would suffer huge financial losses, and they would lay off thousands of people if they had to give up their products. And I brought with me a letter from a similar company from another state who said they had already achieved it. So there was the exhibit, and those came from local and state actions. So I think they're very important. What was it on the research front that you said, Ron? I was wondering if you would comment on where, where you oh, think you're uh, yeah, going yeah, creating yeah, yeah, yeah. alternatives what we need to do as a scientific community. And yeah, well, there are some real, are. really bright spots. For example, that $100 billion fund I mentioned that's uh, committed to with this Paris Agreement, there are already commitments, I guess, of about $20 billion to it, and some of them are from private concerns. There's a billion-dollar commitment from the Gates Consortium, and it's largely aimed at energy technology, I believe. They're funding early stage and scientific concepts on new energy technologies using renewables. Uh, ARPA-E in the Department of Energy that uh, a former Berkeley faculty member was the first director of, Arun Majumdar, they've got uh, some fantastic development projects underway. Energy storage, of course, you need energy storage to be able to use electricity for transportation. So if you could produce electricity using renewable fuels or even nuclear power, and you could store it, and you could store large amounts of it in a car battery, then you could drive around with an electric vehicle better than we can now. So the point is, on many projects like energy storage, battery capacity, charging rates, uh, energy density of storage, on windmill designs, on improvements to the electric power grid, 
that can distribute electricity without major losses over more time zones to make the wind power more accessible and useful. On all of those fronts, ARPA-E under Arun Majumdar, and it continues, has created targets of not only of technical capability, but financial trade-offs. At what point does the price of solar voltaics uh, enter into competition with, say, coal-generated electricity? And they can show you the progress just through this one government agency, ARPA-E, inside the Department of Energy that's really, uh, it's, first of all, it's being managed beautifully. They've got investors involved giving them advice and trying to buy up some of the technology. They've got benchmarks that they're achieving, milestones that they're achieving. So because of the scale of the issue, though, I think private industry has to be involved, if not leading it. You can just have so many demonstrations by the federal government, but you have to have adoption by technology with worldwide sales. So that adds to the complexity of this issue. Regardless of the economic system, I think somehow private concerns have to be helping out here. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Cicerone. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to what you think the implications of sort of growing scientific and political interest in climate engineering research might sure. play in sort of the structuring of the climate yeah. change problem and proposed solutions, especially given the Academy's reports last year. I, I'll try. By the way, that connects with what Professor Cohen was just getting at. Uh, one part of the solution to the climate issue could possibly be carbon capture and sequestration. That is, uh, the intentional capturing of CO2 emissions and putting them somewhere else than in the atmosphere, for example. And there are, to just pursue that example, there are several technologies that are now being explored. It may be premature to call them technologies, but concepts by chemical capture, by biological capture, by burial of carbon, by doing what some of the people here at Berkeley are doing on uh, uh, capturing carbon in soils, which are known to have had higher carbon contents in the past. So it wouldn't be like tricking nature to do something that's impossible, but instead to restoring certain aspects of natural capacity to store carbon. Certain kinds of reforestation can contribute. So. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. Energy efficiency is usually what I start with. There are still huge opportunities in energy efficiency to be, to be gained here. Uh, McKinsey and Company, a global financial analyst for analytical firm, said five or six years ago that if they were advising clients, the typical client of McKinsey would have a bigger return on investment by insulating their buildings than by making any other financial investments. So there are still potentially huge energy savings to be had. And when the price of electricity goes up, people are more willing to, to do those things. So it's, there is not going to be a silver bullet, a magic bullet that solves the whole problem, but it's going to be everything from energy efficiency, some conservation, some lifestyle changes, and a lot of technology, I think. Well, thank you again, and thank you for all your questions. And uh, let's thank Dr. Cicerone again. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.